I'm Trey, my wife Lori, we have eight kids. We're good parents, I think. I hope. Still have three at home, I'm trying to be a good parent. Anyone besides me ever forget a kid somewhere? I mean, leave a kid somewhere? I mean, I'm, I'm a little defensible for me, I have eight. I think we only did it twice. Unfortunately, it was the same kid both times. <laughs> Incidentally, both had to do with Heather Hills Baptist Church. I think Hope was five. We were playing softball 20 years ago. I'd gotten about as far as Stony Brook, just over 70. We look around the van. There was shame involved as my friend Andy Swain rang my phone at that moment. Are you coming back for your daughter? <laughs> Andy, I promise we just realized it ourselves. We forgot, but we remembered. More egregious was our offense sitting right back there in that little area with seven of our children for Sunday morning church. And Lori looking up and down the pew and going, wait a minute. Or maybe it was actually, I think, Debbie Ford came to her who got a phone call and said, um, and Hope had just gone upstairs and was reading and get in the van, we're late, we're late, we're late, you know. We forgot. We remembered eventually and we went and got them. This uh, passage today begins with the word remember, O Lord. Remember. Before we get right into the passage, let me just collect and organize where we are in Lamentations. I had the privilege of doing our overview sermon uh, six weeks ago, and now we come to the conclusion. I was, uh, the title of my message just from an overview was Hope and Healing in the Aftermath of Rebellion. And I spoke about Ground Zero that day, and we just read a little bit more about Ground Zero for the Israelites. Why did we study Lamentations? Can I remind you there were five reasons? Just five quick reasons. This is the longest lament in the Bible. We want to learn to lament. It's a prayer language. We need to be able to express our frustration and sorrow to God in a, a way that's constructive. We'll talk about that this morning. Number two, Lamentations shows us the severity of sin and the holiness of God. Sin's not something to be played around with. Lamentations has shown us that. Lamentations gives us a voice when we suffer, a voice of prayer, a way to relate to God when it's hard. We've seen that. Number four, Lamentations gives us hope. Right in the middle of the book, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercy is present even when it's hard. Amen? Such a great truth to remember. And five, what we will see today also is that Lamentations doesn't end with perfect resolution. Did you like that last verse? Unless you remain exceedingly angry with us and intend to forget us forever. Not a, and they lived happily ever after, last verse. But I'm encouraged by that and we'll talk about that this morning because that feels a little bit like my life. Is yours unresolved yet as of today? And the Lamentations acknowledges that. Well, what will we do today? Our main idea, if you're going to take something away, if you're a note taker, we're going to hear a prayer in pain that turns to trust. 
We've been defining a lament as a prayer in pain that turns to trust. Borrowed that from Pastor Mark Vrogop up at College Park Church. Uh, he wrote a great book uh, about lamentations, and it was very helpful to us in our work in this book. Today we will hear a prayer in pain that turns to trust. The book of Lamentations does not end with complete pessimism. It ends with three prayers seeking God's help and deliverance. And these prayers are offered even in spite of the uncertainty as to when, how, and even if it seems that God will hear an answer. The prayers are offered. The prayers are identified by Jeremiah's use of God's covenant name three different times. We read them. I'll point them out to you so you can see the structure of the sermon this morning. Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember Yahweh. Remember, O Lord. Verse 19. But you, O Lord. Verse 21. Restore ourselves to you, O Lord. In my scripture journal, I'd be circling those three references to the Lord. They are petitions, they are prayers, and they will serve as my outline this morning. Let's look at the first prayer, point number one. Let's call this a prayer for attention. The people say, notice us, God. It's my wife's birthday weekend, week. It's my wife's birthday month. And... um, (laughs) We've had grandchildren in. They like to be noticed. We're swimming, and grandchildren are like, look at me, I'm going to jump. Right? A prayer for attention, a prayer to be noticed. Look at verse 1. Three calls to be remembered. Three requests from the Lord that are similar. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see. Remember, look, see. This is emphasized. It's a prayer for attention. The word remember is an important word, especially in Old Testament usage. When God remembers you, it connotes His grace coming to you in a special and meaningful way. There are all kinds of places in the Old Testament, especially where a person is said to have been remembered by God. The Noah story is a great story that helps us understand this. The point of the Noah story comes at the center, not at the end. Most of us in our Western understanding of, the, of stories being told think about a setting and rising tension and a climax and resolution. It's like a sitcom. And the point comes in the last three minutes. But in Eastern writing, the point comes in the center, at the point of the center. And you could study this and find it very easily, but if you were to look at the whole Noah's story, you would find that God speaks at the beginning and at the end, gives a divine monologue. Early in the story, we're told that God's heart is grieved by the wickedness of men. And later in the uh, story, at the very end, the Lord speaks from His heart words of kindness. There are four stages of entering the ark. And there are four stages of leaving the ark. A raven, three times a dove. God establishes a covenant with His people uh, at the beginning and end, there are, they're told to go into the ark. They're told to come out of the ark. The fountains of the deep burst forth. The fountains of the deep are restrained. There are seven verbs of ascent going into the ark. The, the water increased, bore, rose, prevailed, increased greatly, prevailed mightily. Mountains were covered. 
On the other side of that, there are seven verbs of descent, subsided, were restrained, receded, abated, come to rest, continued to abate, and the mountains were seen again. Can you feel how those things are like mirror each other coming along the story? They're right in synchronicity. They point to something right in the middle. Do you know what they point to? The most understated verse that you would just move past as an English person, but a Hebrew would go, oh my goodness. But God remembered Noah right there in the middle. To have this idea of being remembered in the Scripture is to have grace conveyed to you in a special and meaningful way. It's very significant for these people to pray and be very significant for us to pray, God, remember us. The hymn writer thought it was very significant and used this thought when he penned these words. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriends thee. What can't God do? What does Jeremiah ask them to see? Remember, look and see. Remember, look and see. The people pray. What do they ask Him to look and see? Well, they say, please see our disgrace. The next 17 verses describe their disgrace, the scorn, their guilt. It starts in verses 2 through 10, and we have a whole host of first-person plurals. And then in uh, 11 to 14, there are groups of people mentioned, and then we have some summary at the end. But they all come together here in this almost musical, you know, this is the shortest book in Lamentations. Did you feel it? How fast it was as we read it? It was quick, almost musical staccato. Boom, 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 boom. Faster, faster, faster. Jeremiah is not trying to focus on all of the things he's already said before, but he's trying to make this point to God for the purpose of remembering. You might say, wait, isn't God omniscient? Does he need us to pray? Well, God certainly responds when we do. These 17 verses, as I said, describe their disgrace. The list is very specific. It actually reminds me of how we feel when we're suffering. Life just keeps hitting you. Bang, bang, one day after the other, one blow after another. It's just a snapshot of the last four chapters that we've endured listening to this preaching. I'll read each of the 17 verses very quickly and give a quick explanation. Verse 2. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Yes, we've learned they were invaded by foreign lands. We've become orphans, fatherless, verse 3. Our mothers are like widows. They feel abandoned. God had withdrawn from them. Their allies that they sought for help were impotent. They felt alone. Verse 4, we must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. The economy has collapsed. They are impoverished. There is no resources. Verse 5, our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. They are exhausted, nonstop fighting for years for survival. Has them weary with no end in sight. Verse 6, we've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. They are dependent on others. They tried to ally themselves with foreign nations against the Babylonian siege. It did not work. As a consequence, verse 7, they say, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. They have been disciplined. They are bearing the consequences of their leaders and their nation's rebellion against God. 
Verse 8, slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. There is anarchy in the land. From what they were used to, society was upside down. You begin to feel how they feel? Sometimes my life feels this way. Verse 9, we get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. There's no law enforcement desperate, just getting bread, just getting food is dangerous. And verse 10, our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Funny that word hot literally in the Hebrew means wrinkled, like you would get something out of the oven. They are sick. Hunger and dehydration every day. In fact, there's a great irony here. Do you realize you don't need ovens in times of famine? Just this little expression here that our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. This theme continues in verses 11 to 14. Jeremiah moves from first-person plurals where he speaks collectively of the people and himself to third-person examples. His point here, you need to notice all the different people groups, and his point is simply everybody is suffering, no one's exempt. Do you understand? Everybody's suffering, no one's exempt. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. There's assault going on, victimization. Verse 12, princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. There's dishonor in the land. Sad to see princes and elders disrespected. Princes representing authority. Elders representing teaching. It's all gone. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. Boys stagger under loads of wood. They are oppressed. During the siege, all animals in the area have been eaten or killed. Children are doing animals' jobs. Grinding and pulling loads of wood. The old men have left the city gates. The young men, their music. There is mourning because there is nothing at all to rejoice about. All music has ceased. I would guess study, sports, and all forms of leisure had ceased. Verses 15 to 18 return to the first person plural and kind of sum up in a sense what has gone on. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. Anyone recognize that? It's a reverse of Psalm 30, verse 11. It's been popularized in Christian music that our mourning has been turned into dancing. Here he says, reversing what David wrote in Psalm 30, our dancing has been turned to mourning. There's sadness. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. They are ashamed. They have lost their prominence, their blessing from God. Everyone knows it. Verse 17, for this our heart has become sick, and for these things our eyes have grown dim. Do you remember how this started? What did they pray? Remember, look, and see. What a prayer here. God, I hope you can see, because we can't. Our eyes are dim. They are grieved. They have sorrow. And lastly, verse 18. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. They are devastated. Wild animals have invaded the ruins of Jerusalem. Everything is desolate. Sound bad enough to you? It does to me. They are truly a disgrace. Remember, O Lord, look and see our disgrace. They are a hot mess, and they detail it. 
Every aspect of the nation is devastated. It's all ruined. All they could hope for was that God had not forgotten them and would look on them again with mercy. Have you prayed like that? Please, God, remember us. Pay us some attention. We all feel a little bit like this at certain times, at certain times of our lives. This is why we would take time to study a book like Lamentations. The descriptions in these 17 verses remind us of truths we need to remember ourselves. Let me give you four theological thoughts about why you need to be able to lament in your souls. Why it's good for you to tell God your troubles. One, pain is a part of the curse of sin. It is ongoing. We shouldn't deny it. In fact, we should prepare for it. James doesn't say that we should come to God if we face trials. It says when. Secondly, pain brings out strong emotions, uncontrolled feelings at times. We need to know what to do when we feel this kind of pain. It can be frightening for some people. It's unsettling. It's hard. We need to be taught. We've been lulled to sleep in America, and I think we need to realize life will change. Third, pain is not always resolved quickly. Sometimes pain lingers. Some people suffer every day. Lament isn't just a means to worship. Lament can be an ongoing, everyday pathway of relating to God so that we can persevere. For some people, that's how it is. And there is an opportunity to minister to unbelievers. Lamenting in a way that pleases God, that puts ourselves in submission to God and trusts Him, brings credibility to our gospel witness. If we suffer well, we can bring great confidence for others to God and His plan, His eternal purposes in our suffering. You understand, right? Are you, are, you, are you understanding lament is a prayer language? And this is a prayer that I hope we could learn a little of, or we have learned in the last six weeks. This is a language to use when you are suffering and facing difficulties in your life. It doesn't matter, listen, listen, it doesn't matter if it's due to your sinfulness, somebody else's sinfulness, or just the curse of sin that we are all living under every day. It's sin. Lament gets God's attention. And if you think I'm I'm overblowing it here, listen to the cry found throughout the Scripture. Paul wrote, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything in thanks. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Peter wrote, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. John wrote, if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. King David wrote, The Lord is near to all who call on Him in truth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. The Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. Solomon wrote, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Jesus' earthly brother James wrote, You have not because you ask not. He said, if you're suffering, you should pray. If you're happy, sing praise. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The book of Hebrews, we read, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in any time of need. And Jesus himself taught, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you shall find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. Pray in secret, and your Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward you. Now bringing this back to the context of Lamentations, Jeremiah himself prophesied of the future of these same people in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. Listen to this. Then you will call on me and you will come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And to drive the point home fully, Ezra the scribe, wrote to the returning exiles in a verse that's often wrongly used to reference America, I'm sorry, but is actually a reminder of God's people and his faithfulness to Israel. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and I will heal heal their land. That's how a lament prayer develops. But remember, a true lament is a prayer in pain that turns to trust. And the first word here that we find in verse 19, having gone through all of that, is the word but. And this is the turn, and we begin to see the trust of a true lament. A true lament is not just a complaint. It's not just a list of the grievances, but it's more like processing the information and getting connected to the one who can do something about it. There are only a few turns in the entire book of Lamentations, and two of them come here. You remember the other great one in chapter 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And this turn to trust begins our second point, a prayer of submission. A focus on the sovereign rule of God over all things. Because life is so hard and chaotic, people are tempted to believe that life is random. Totally out of control and without God's direction. But this is not true. And Jeremiah again returns to call out to God. Oh Lord, hear the second prayer. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? The prayer is brief, but it's helpful to our understanding of lamenting. It teaches us there is an unseen spiritual reality to the suffering of the Israelites, and it teaches us that there is an unseen spiritual reality to our suffering as well. This prayer shows God's rule and reign over everything, including the pain and suffering that the, lamenta- that the Israelites are experiencing here. Isaiah chapter 66 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In our culture, there's this fascination with UFOs. And I, I, I know this, if you could get in a spaceship and you could travel to the center of the universe and explore, do you know what you would find? The throne of God. The truth of God's sovereignty is essential to understanding pain and suffering. Some people will point to this as a theological problem, like, well, if God is all in control, then why is there bad things? I think, while that's a legitimate thing to think about, I think it's a bigger problem if God isn't sovereign. If God isn't in charge, then all suffering, friends, is pointless, hopeless, heartless, and meaningless doesn't answer the question you will have because of your suffering 
I'm sorry, the questions that you will have because of your suffering. And verse 20 makes that clear. It still hurts. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Are you facing suffering right now? Do you have this thought internalized? Are you saying in your heart, why do you forget us forever? Why will you forsake us for so many days? How long will this go on, Lord? It appears it's okay to go ahead and say it out loud. Just don't believe the lie that because there are unthinkable, horrible, hard things in this world, that God is not all-loving and all-powerful. God rules and reigns over everything supremely. There's a choice here. Instead of becoming hardened or skeptical by suffering, you can remember this prayer. Call out to God. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne to all generations. When you find yourself, when I find myself, in the same place as the Israelites did in Lamentations, when you feel invaded, abandoned, impoverished, exhausted, depressed, disciplined, cry out to God. When you feel like life is upside down, when you're desperate, when you're sick, assaulted, dishonored, and oppressed, call out to God. When your dancing becomes mourning, when you're ashamed, when you're guilty, when you're grieved and devastated, cry out, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. How great for the Israelites to hold on to this truth when they've lost their teachings, their worship, their sons, their daughters, their very way of life. They could still say, but you, O Lord, reign forever. When you're facing pain and suffering and you're wondering if God is in your pain, remember Christ and His pain. Hear these words from John Piper's book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. Christ absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and He did it by suffering. Christ bore our sins and purchased our forgiveness and He did it by suffering. Christ provided a perfect righteousness for us that became ours in Him and He did it by suffering christ defeated death and he did it by suffering christ disarmed satan and he did it by suffering christ purchased perfect final healing for everyone and he did it by suffering christ will finally bring us to god and he did it by suffering it's this submission and confidence in god that allows the last petition of the prayer to breathe and come to life in spirit and truth And we find it in verse 21. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. The last portion of the prayer of Lamentations is a prayer for a restored relationship with God. The word restore carries the meaning of causing to be returned to a better state or position or or simply to turn back This is the promise that God would bring His people back from their destruction. It's so important to the Holy Spirit. It's so important to the Scripture. It's so important to the heart of the petitioner, Jeremiah, that he prayed it twice. The prayer's so nice, he prayed it twice. Restore us that we may be restored. 
I alluded to this before, but the prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles living in Babylon several years later from this poem with the hopes of encouraging them to persevere and not lose heart. And Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, give us this message, and it's part of the answer to this prayer. Jeremiah 29, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. These verses remind us of the restoration of Israel to the land and God's intention to prosper them once again. But if that's all you see, you miss a lot. This prayer is much more than just hoping for the good old days of David and Solomon. The restoration of God's people is a restoration of the people to God Himself. Understand this. The exile was needed to awaken the people to their greatest need. Their greatest loss wasn't the land. Their greatest defeat wasn't the monarchy, the loss of the king or the temple, as dramatic and horrible as those things were. Their greatest loss and their greatest need was the presence and blessing of God Himself. That's why Jeremiah 29 speaks of the people seeking and finding God again. The horrible devastation that we've listened to for five weeks was designed to demonstrate to the Israelites that the the greater problem of their sinfulness and their even greater need for forgiveness, spiritual restoration, and return to God. God delivered them to their enemies in order to rescue them from themselves. God delivered them to their enemies in order to rescue them from themselves. God humbled them. And we know that, when God, give, that God gives grace to the humble. This was an act of grace by God to take away all their earthly idols, all their earthly securities, and bring them in desperation to a point that they would trust in Him. Whoever the Lord loves, He disciplines. Now you might be asking in closing here after this great prayer, why does the book end with a seemingly pessimistic phrase? Sounds so great. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Wouldn't it be great if the book ended there in one sense? But it doesn't, and I love that it doesn't as I've looked at this more and more. Unless you remain utterly, unless you have utterly rejected us and remain exceedingly angry with us. I think the book ends with this tone for two reasons. Number one, the people still have their tail between their legs. It's a 70-year exile, and at the most, we're probably about five years into it. Five years within the fall, five years within the siege, the fall of Jerusalem. They're still very tender, not in any way wanting to be presumptuous of God's mercy. But at the same time, this is like a child reminding 
their father of what he said. Is God remaining exceedingly angry with them? No. God promised not to remain exceedingly angry with them. They are using the words of God in a prayer to God. A subtle way of reminding God, you said you wouldn't remain angry forever. And secondly, and probably even more meaningful or just as meaningful, they are still in the middle of the devastation. Life is still very hard for them. This is how they feel. It's not the truth, but it's how they feel. They don't know the end of the story firsthand yet, just like you and I. A nice way, uh, one thing that happened to me this week is uh, Lori and I have some things we're lamenting about. And I think it was Wednesday morning. She'd gone to the Y early, run her three miles. And as I was heading to work, we passed in the driveway. She was crying. What's going on? Nothing new. I'm just lamenting. It's sad. Your life's that way. My life's that way. There are things in our lives we lament. So it's so important to have this kind of language. We know that our futures are guaranteed by the promises of God, and yet, from day to day, we lament. And we pray like this. How long? <laughs> are you still mad? <laughs> what, what's happening, Lord? <laughs> I think we can learn a lot from that. Why does this contradiction, contradiction exist even in our own lives? Because suffering changes you. Suffering makes you real. Suffering makes you raw. Suffering makes you sincere. Nobody's rude in the, in the surgery waiting room. Everybody's kind and gracious to one another. Suffering makes you sincere. Suffering allows you to pray. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Suffering changes how you see yourself. Suffering changes how you see the world. Suffering changes how you see sin and redemption and the brokenness all around you. Suffering helps you connect with the glory of God, His holiness, and His ruling sovereignty. Well, what are our takeaways before we come to the Lord's Supper here? One of the reasons that we uh, wanted to teach this book was to remind ourselves that we need to lament for the right things. My pool's leaking. My roof needs replaced. Those are inconveniences, first world inconveniences. I don't know if they rise to the level of lament. Friends, let's make sure that we are lamenting sin brokenness, suffering, lostness, the need for folks to be saved. Let's lament the right things. Everybody cries. That's humanity. To lament, to have a prayer and pain that turns to trust, that's Christian. You may not like suffering, but grace is only amazing because suffering is real and hard. Lament involves waiting. Waiting on the Lord. Sitting in trust and submission. Waiting is not wasting time if you're waiting on the Lord. 
We've learned that lamenting is not sinful or faithless to express how you feel, but it must turn to trust. And hope can come to our mind when we turn our minds to truth. Long ago, Jeremiah called out, You reign forever, O Lord. So remember your people and restore us. Trey's synopsis. You reign forever, O Lord, so remember your people and restore us. Today, with the cross in mind, we can say with great confidence, the Lord who reigns can deliver. The Lord who reigns does restore. And the truth is, He has done so conclusively through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We have studied great truths here in the book of Lamentations. Some of them bring us right to the truth surrounding the ceremony that we are about to participate in together. Lamentations 4 did not end with a prayer. Every other poem seemed to end with a prayer. Lamentations 5 seems to serve in one way as the prayer for Lamentations 4. Lamentations 4, verse 22, the last verse, ends with this statement. The punishment for your sin, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. The punishment is over. He will keep you in exile no longer. That's a great promise. And the language is very similar to another proclamation of atonement made by the Lord Jesus. On the cross when he declared, it is finished. Second theme in chapter 4, we saw that the Lord's anointed was captured in their pits, King Zedekiah. This put the Davidic dynasty at risk. You say here in America, so what? The Davidic dynasty is tied to the Davidic covenant, God's agreement with David, which is the promise of the Messiah, the King, Jesus. We were reminded of that again this week when Jeremiah, I moved by it quickly earlier, but in verse 16, he, they said the crown has fallen, indicating the loss of royal authority and position. The people are hopeless. And I moved past a strong statement in verse 8 very quickly too, earlier to use it here. They say there is no one to deliver us. There's no one to help. We are in trouble. What shall we do? How will God fulfill His promise to David for the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 when God said, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. King Zedekiah's sons were murdered. His eyes were put out and he was taken into exile. How shall the Davidic line continue? We are about, you can come on guys, we are about to participate in what is called the Lord's Supper or Communion. This is a ceremony of remembering what Jesus has accomplished for us so that we never lose sight of the importance of the good news that has been given to us. This ceremony is for all who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and give them a home in heaven. This ceremony is for all who believe that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. If you believe these things, we welcome you to participate with us. 
If you do not believe these things, then you should refrain. And we would encourage you to discuss these truths with us so that you can discover the great love God has for you and how He demonstrated that love through the death of Jesus. Jesus brought atonement, which is the forgiveness of sin, the satisfaction of wrath to all mankind and fulfilled all the promises of God. There are many covenants in the Bible between God and mankind. A covenant's an agreement. It's like a contract between two parties. A good definition is a binding relationship between two parties based on certain promises. Sounds like a contract, an agreement. In the Bible, some of the most important covenants that you probably know about are God's covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Moses and Israel. God made a covenant with David that I just read. And what we will discuss now, the new covenant. The new covenant is prophesied two chapters after I read in Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah chapter 31, where we read this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers, that'd be the Mosaic covenant, on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of their land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Just before his death, while celebrating the Passover, Jesus transitioned the Passover and began hosting the first communion. And he said to his followers, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When Jesus said this, he made it clear that he was the pathway to the new covenant. It is the sacrifice of Jesus that ultimately restores us to God from our broken, cursed sinfulness. When we do this, we pray, remember, O Lord, look and see. When we do this, we say, O Lord, You reign forever. When we do this, we pray, Lord, restore us to Yourself that we may be restored. That we would never forget the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf.